ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so today then the topic of discussion throughout the day has been regarding ramadan and the manner in which a believer should prepare himself for this month of ramadan so you've heard in the lectures that have gone some of the methods mannerisms some of the ahadith and narrations clarifying the virtues of ramadan clarifying the wisdoms of ramadan and therefore highlighting to a believer the manner in which he should prepare for ramadan We'll further elaborate on those points in this final lecture. As for the very basic wisdom behind Ramadan, that is, as you will have heard now, mentioned by Allah in the Qur'an. Allah informs us in the Qur'an itself, the wisdom behind Ramadan. And that is in the ayah, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الصَّيَامُ كَمَا كُتِبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ That all you who believe, fasting has been prescribed upon you, just as it was prescribed upon those who came before you. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ So that you may achieve piety. So that you may achieve taqwa. That you may achieve the righteousness. That is what Allah has informed us of in the Qur'an itself. A person should therefore be aware with the coming of this month now that the purpose behind it, the objective behind it, the wisdom behind it is to attain taqwa from it. And that becomes clear or the reality becomes highlighted when you think about what the majority of people associate Ramadan with, when you talk to the majority of people and you mention Ramadan to them, then the types of thoughts and the types of discussions that arise all revolve around a few select points. At the head of them, what will be the closing time? What will be the opening time? Do you have a timetable yet? 
Do you have the schedule yet? Everybody wants to know what is the closing time and what is the opening time. They want to study that timetable. They want to look and observe at the times of closing and the times of opening. And that is the key focus of the majority of people when you mention Ramadan to them. It is all about when it will close, what time is it going to be, how early is it going to be, and when is it going to open, how late is it going to be, how many hours is the day going to be. Everything revolves around that type of conversation. Because everybody seems to have an association fixed with Ramadan, an association that Ramadan is simply a lack of food and a lack of drink from that morning time to the evening time. A lack of food and drink. We're not going to be able to eat. We're not going to be able to drink. And that is the time in the morning, three something. And that is the time in the evening, nine something, 18 hours. That is all the people ever discuss when it comes to talking about Ramadan. In the conversations of the people, that is what it revolves around. But that is not the wisdom or the objective or the purpose of Ramadan. The Salaf, they used to mention that stopping food, stopping drink, not eating, not drinking, that is the easiest part of Ramadan. Ahwanu sawm the easiest part of fasting is to stop eating and drinking. Anybody can stop eating and drinking from Fajr to Maghrib. That is manageable by everyone, by most people. That isn't the difficulty. The Salaf, they used to say the issue of the food... No food, no drink from Fajr to Maghrib. That is a minor aspect of Ramadan. That is an easy and simple part of Ramadan. But if that is the case, if that is the case, that no food and no drink and the hunger... That is just a minor and easy and simple part of Ramadan. The question then is, what did the Salaf view as the actual difficulty in Ramadan? For most people, it doesn't make sense. Because for most people, the difficulty of Ramadan is exactly that. No food, no drink. What time does it close? What time does it open? That is all the people worry about. Yet the Salaf used to say that is a minor and easy part of fasting. The difficulty is, as they used to say, the difficult part of fasting 
is to leave your sins, to leave your wrongs, your shortcomings, your deficiencies, your haram in speech and action. That is the real difficulty from a person. Stopping food and drink a person can do. Stopping his sins, stopping the evil usage of his tongue, the backbiting that he has become so accustomed to, the lying that he has become so accustomed to, the backbiting and the slander that he has become so accustomed to. Can he stop that? Can he rectify himself and stop that evil from himself? That is the difficulty. Stopping the food and the drink is not the difficulty. Stopping the sins is the difficulty. And that's why you have the famous narration where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned, مَنْ لَمْ يَدَعْ قَوْلَ الزُّورِ وَالْعَمَلَ بِهِ وَالْجَهْلِ فَلَيْسَ لِلَّهِ حَاجَةِ فِي أَنْ يَدَعْ طَعَامَهُ وَشَرَابَهُ That the one who does not leave the statements of falsehood, meaning all speech of falsehood, a person who does not leave the statements of falsehood, evil, lie, slander, does not leave using his tongue for evil, and does not leave action upon evil. The acting upon evil and wrong does not abandon his evil actions. And neither does he abandon al-jahl, meaning foolishness. A person who does not leave his evil speech and his evil actions and foolishness. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, فَلَيْسَ لِلَّهِ حَاجَةِ فِي أَنْ يَدْعَ طَعَامَهُ وَشَرَابَهُ then Allah has no need for that person to leave his food and drink. He's not going to leave his evil in speech and actions and foolishness. Then Allah has no need for him to stop eating and drinking. The point of that narration is to highlight that anybody who thinks fasting is just about no food and drink from Maghrib to uh, from Fajr to Maghrib, then that person is greatly mistaken. Anybody who thinks fasting is just don't eat, don't drink from Fajr to Maghrib and you're done, then that person has not understood the reality of fasting at all. In this hadith, the Prophet tells you if that's all. What you are going to do, if that is all you are going to do, to stop eating and to stop drinking from Fajr to Maghrib, if that is all you are going to do, and you are going to carry on with your evil speech, your lying, your slandering, your backbiting, your tail carrying, you are going to carry on with all of that. 
You're going to carry on with all of your evil actions and speech. You're going to carry on with all of your foolish behavior. But you're going to stop eating and drinking. Then that is not the reality of fasting whatsoever. Anyone who thinks they can stop eating and drinking but carry on with all of that evil... And that is the purpose of Ramadan, I've done it. I didn't eat, I didn't drink. But you didn't leave any of your sins either. Then perhaps you will go through Ramadan without achieving the reward of the fasting. Because every day, every day that you engage in evil whilst fasting, evil in speech, evil in action, then that evil, it deteriorates, it takes away from the reward of your fast for that day. Until if a person carries on with evil speech and actions all day, then maybe at the end of the day, He's not eaten, he's not drunk, he's been hungry. But maybe at the end of the day, he barely has any reward to show for that day. Because the reward that he would have got for that day, it has slowly been taken away bit by bit because of all of the evil he's been doing during the day. And that's why the scholars, they say, المفطرات نوعان The things that break your fast are two types. There are two types of things that break the fast of a person. One is the obvious, like eating and drinking, etc., the physical types of things that break your fast in its essence. Meaning they invalidate your day. Somebody who eats on purpose, drinks on purpose. Somebody who engages in those types of activities on purpose, then that invalidates his fast. But what is the second type of thing? That breaks the fast of a person. Actions and speech of evil. The evil actions, the evil speech, the evil behavior. All of these things break your fast too. But what is the difference in the way that these things break your fast? The physical things, the food, the drink, etc. broke the fast, meaning they invalidated it, it doesn't count. These types of things break your fast, meaning they break the reward of your fast. The day will count, you fasted. You didn't eat, you didn't drink, you didn't do any of those things, the day will count. But all of these other things of evil you've been doing, they have been breaking your fast, meaning they've been taking away the reward for your day of fasting. 
until maybe a person fasts the whole day, and at the end of the day, he has nothing to show for the reward of that day, because he has lost all of the reward in the lying he's been doing all day, the swearing he's been doing all day, the backbiting, the slander. And that's why it's important to remember your fast is not just broken with food and drink, etc. Your fast is affected by your behavior. Your fasting will be affected by your behavior, by your speech, by your actions. Your fast will be affected by those things. The reward will be taken away bit by bit if you engage in the evil. And that's why we all need to remember the narrations the Prophet ﷺ informed us of regarding this month. Because only then, when a person realizes what the tremendous virtues of this month are, and what the Prophet ﷺ has informed us regarding this month, only then will a person appreciate the reality, the benefit, the virtue of this month, and only then will he truly benefit and reap the fruits of his worship in this month. So you have many narrations. The Prophet ﷺ said, مَنْ صَامَ رَمَضَانْ إِيمَانًا وَاحْتِسَابًا غُفِرَ لَهُ مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِنْ ذَنْبِهِ Whomsoever fasts in Ramadan with Iman and with Ihtisab, meaning that you do it sincerely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, desiring the reward from Allah. A person who fasts like that, with iman, with sincerity, desiring and hoping for the reward from Allah, then the hadith tells you, his sins, past minor sins, will all be forgiven. Similarly, مَنْ قَامَ رَمَضَانَ إِيمَانًا وَاحْتِسَابًا غُفِرَ لَهُ مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِنْ ذَنْبِهِ Whomsoever prays in Ramadan with iman, with sincerity, desiring the reward from Allah, then again it mentions his past sins are forgiven. In another one, مَنْ قَامَ لَيْلَةَ الْقَدْرِ إِيمَانًا وَاحْتِسَابًا غُفِرَ لَهُ مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِنْ ذَنْبِهِ Whomsoever stands on the night of decree, praying on Laylatul Qadr, with iman in Allah, with sincerity, hoping for the reward from Allah, then again his past sins are forgiven. When a person thinks about this promise from Allah, that if you fast and you pray, with iman, with sincerity, hoping for the reward from Allah for your deeds, then Allah promises you this great promise. 
that your past sins, they are wiped. Your past sins from the minor are all forgiven. And that is a great virtue. But regarding the prayer, the scholars say, that promise only counts for you. If you pray every single night, you pray the night prayer every single night, you don't miss a single one. So when you see these narrations, it highlights something important to us. And that is something very basic, but something that is oft forgotten. That fasting, Qiyamul Layl, Taraweeh, all of these are acts of worship that you are doing for Allah. All of these will be written down in your deeds of righteousness. And so a person should not approach Ramadan in a robotic fashion. Should not approach Ramadan with a mentality of it being simply a routine once a year. A routine that you get up, you have your suhoor, you pray, you sleep. In the evening you go to the taraweeh. It becomes a routine for a month and that is it. No other thoughts in the mind of the servant of what a great worship this is you are doing. No remembrance that the Prophet has told you if you do this upon Iman, your sins are forgiven. But it's a routine to the people. A routine with the schedule and the timetable on the wall, looking at the times and doing their routine for a month. Nobody thinking about the great virtues of it, the mercy of Allah upon you, the time for rectification and achieving taqwa. That has been forgotten, it has become a schedule to follow for a month and that is it. But if you desire the true benefit, then don't allow Ramadan to just become a schedule. Don't allow Ramadan to just become a routine that you robotically follow. Rather remember every day when you are upon that fasting, that hunger, that thirst that you experience, you are doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why it's mentioned in the hadith, لَخَلُوفُ فَمِ صَائِمِ أَطْيَبُ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ مِنْ رِيحِ الْمِسْكِ That the smell that comes from the mouth of a fasting person, even though we view that as a bad type of smell, it mentions that to Allah, that is more fragrant than the misk. Why? Because that has occurred in your mouth, that change of smell, because of the lack of food and the lack of drink, due to you performing that as an act of worship to Allah. So that smell has occurred because of your act of worship to Allah. And so it is beloved, or rather it is more fragrant than even the mist. In another narration, Allah tells you of the virtue. If only you remembered every day when you are fasting. إِنَّ فِي الْجَنَّةِ بَابًا يُقَالُ لَهُ الرَّيَّانِ لَا يَدْخُلُ مِنْهُ إِلَّا الصَّائِمُونَ That there is a gate in paradise called 
الريان Nobody goes in through that except those who are fasting. The people are fasting. And then in the narration it mentions, فَإِذَا دَخَلَ آخِرُهُمْ Or when all of them have entered, when all of the fasting people deserving specifically of that gate have entered from it, then the gate is closed and nobody else enters in from it. Another great narration about the Day of Judgment for the one who fasts. Everybody knows the hadith regarding the Muflis. أَتَدْرُونَ مَنِ الْمُفْلِسِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ Do you know who the bankrupt one is on the Day of Judgment? The Prophet said to his companions, Do you know who the bankrupt one is on the Day of Judgment? They said the one who doesn't have any dirhams, any dinar, any gold, any silver, any money. A person who has no money. But then it was said to them, that is not the bankrupt one on the day of judgment. The bankrupt one on the day of judgment is a person who used to do worship. He used to pray. He used to fast. He used to do the worship. But then at the same time, even though he used to do worship, at the same time he had bad characteristics. He used to lie and he used to take the rights of the people, oppress the people, backbite, slander, hit, beat the people. So on the day of judgment, all of those who he oppressed will come for the taking of their rights. They will come to retrieve their rights from that individual. So they will begin taking his good deeds to make that recompense, that balance in returning the rights to them. They will begin taking his good deeds. Until when his good deeds, they run out, they will begin casting their evil deeds upon him in order to balance the fact that he had oppressed them. But what is interesting about this, is that it is mentioned from one of the Salaf, that on that day, his good deeds are taken away by those who he oppressed. However, the deed of fasting will not be taken from him. That deed remains with him. That is mentioned by some of the Salaf. The deed of fasting will not go. That will stay with him. And that is mentioned upon the explanation of a hadith. The hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ said, 
كل عمل ابن آدم له إلا الصوم أو الصيام فإنه لي وأنا أجزي به that all of the actions of the sons of Adam meaning the servants of Allah all of the deeds all of the actions they do for them they will be rewarded upon them <coughs> and every good deed is 10 times the reward up to 700 times the reward but fasting Allah says فَإِنَّهُ لِي Fasting is out of that equation. Fasting is for me, Allah says, and I will reward the person upon it. The scholars, they've mentioned, one of the meanings of that is that on the day of judgment, his deed of fasting will not be removed and taken from him. Even in that circumstance of the oppressed ones, if anything is left, they cast their evil deeds. If anything else, the Salaf said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will balance the remainder for those who are oppressed. But his action of fasting will not be taken from him. Because that is for Allah, and Allah will reward the person upon it. <coughs> Another explanation of it, the scholars, they say, because the action of fasting it is one of those types of actions that openly does not have any showing off in it. Openly, it doesn't have showing off in it. Meaning, right now in this room, there could be people who are fasting. Is there any way to tell who is fasting and who is not by just looking at them? Is there any way to tell? You're walking down the street, you see a Muslim... Is he fasting today or not? He's just walking down the street. How can you tell if he's fasting or not? It is a type of action that apparently you can't tell if somebody's doing it. When somebody, of course, when they're eating, you know they're not. But when they're not doing anything like that, they're just sitting there, you walk into the room. How do you know if that person is fasting or not? Just by looking. You can't tell. So it's one of those actions mentioned by the scholars that has a greater degree of sincerity in it. On top of the fact that nobody would know if you were being deceptive. If a person secretly carried on eating all day and then you come to the mosque or you come out to the streets and people see you and you don't eat anything in front of them, everybody will assume you're fasting. But you may secretly during the day when you're by yourself be eating. How would anybody know? If you secretly went and got something to eat at midday, in the afternoon secretly, how would anybody know? But you don't do it. And the fact that you don't do it, even though nobody would know, nobody would be able to tell, you would come in the evening and open your fast with everybody else, they would assume you're fasting just like them. They wouldn't know you've been eating during the day. But you don't eat. And the fact that you don't eat, even though you could and nobody would know, indicates your level of sincerity to Allah. That you're doing this act of worship, even though publicly to the people, they would never know if you weren't doing it. 
They would never know if you got up by yourself at home and had breakfast at 10 a.m. and come out that day to the mosque in the evening. Nobody would know. Nobody would know that's what you've done. But you don't do it. And the fact that you don't do it, even though you couldn't, nobody would know, indicates your sincerity to Allah. And that's why in the hadith it mentions fasting is for Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards the person upon it. So when we think about these types of narrations, we think about how the Prophet ﷺ told us, the one who fasts with iman, then his sins are taken away. The one who prays with iman, and desiring the reward of Allah, his sins are taken away. All of these types of narrations, the gate in paradise only for the people who fast. The fact that your fasting will never be taken from you, Allah rewards you upon that. All of this indicates to us that we cannot allow Ramadan to become a simple routine and a timetable, looking at the closing and opening times every day, and that is all we focus on every day. Rather, your focus should be on these acts of worship, the focus should be upon the fasting and the prayer and the Qur'an. The prayer, as Shaykh al-Thaymeen, he mentioned. As Shaykh al-Thaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentioned, when you come to the taraweeh, do not come with that mentality, that robotic mentality, that it's just something you've got to do. You come and you line up, and all your thinking all evening is the countdown to how many raka'at are left. Counting down, okay, that's two, that's four, that's six, that's eight. And feeling happy, you're getting to witter now. Cannot wait to count down and get out. If that is the type of attitude you have, when you come to the prayer, then where are you and where do you stand? to the narration of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, man qama ramadan imanan ihtisaba, the one who comes and prays with iman, and comes and prays wishing for the reward from Allah, knowing he's doing this tremendous act of worship, that is what you should be thinking, but is that where you are, and where you are thinking, and where your mind is in that worship? Or is your mind simply doing the countdown to get out? Look at the examples of the imams of the past. Al-Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he used to lead the people in prayer. He was the imam of his jama'ah. And when he used to lead in Ramadan, every night in the taraweeh, he would recite, Ten Jews, ten Jews in the Taraweeh every night, meaning that he would lead the Taraweeh for three days. On the third night, he would be finishing and completing the Quran. Throughout Ramadan, he would lead them in prayer. And at the end of Ramadan, he has completed the Qur'an ten times with them. But that is not all. 
That is when Al-Imam Al-Bukhari was leading the prayer in Ramadan. What about the rest of the day when Al-Imam Al-Bukhari was at home? What was he doing? Every day, he was recapping, revising, reading the whole Qur'an once a day. During the day. Once a day, during the day, he'd already finished the Qur'an. Then in the evening, he would come and read another 10 juz with the people. Meaning at the end of Ramadan, he has finished the Qur'an 10 times leading the prayer. And he has finished the Qur'an 30 times in his private reading. 40 times altogether in the month of Ramadan. That is the type of effort and striving the imams of the past placed into Ramadan. And there are many, many narrations of others from the Salaf doing this type of thing, if not even more than 40 times in the month. So when a person looks at the example of the Salaf, looks at Imam al-Bukhari finishing the Qur'an 40 times in Ramadan. And then you look at your own example. You look at what you do and what effort you put in. How much striving you put in during this month. You compare yourself to Imam al-Bukhari. So where are you? If you find yourself not even a fraction of what they did, then it's not because we are busy now. Do not think because we are busy now. Those imams of the past, they were busier than us. They were busier than us. Umar ibn al-Khattab, at one time he was a shepherd, out every day looking after the sheep and the farm. Now, easy for everybody, nine to five, come home finished. As for the sheep and the farm and the shepherd, that's what they used to do, and that is the type of time and effort they used to put in. Yet, despite all of that, they would come and they would strive in these times of worship, strive in these times of obedience, the sisters included. Often the people always say these days, Brothers and sisters, how do we combine between our worship and our daily affairs? Then the answer is simple. You combine between those affairs, just like the Salaf combined between those affairs. Did the Salaf find it impossible to combine between the affairs? Clearly not. Clearly not. When you look at their examples of what they used to do in Ramadan, 10 juz in the taraweeh every night, how many hours is that going to be? How long are they going to be standing in prayer? Knowing they stood in that prayer, knowing every moment of that is being recorded for them in their good deeds. They prayed knowing all of that, insha'Allah ta'ala will wipe out their past sins. So that is why they did not stand there counting down how many raka'at are left. They stood there loving the fact that they are stood there. Loving the fact they are in ruku'ah. 
loving the fact they are in sujood. That is the difference between them and us. That is the difference between the great imams and the people of our time. The difference is the love a person has for his worship. The love that you have for that worship. If you are a person who has very little interest, then you are only counting down the raka'at. But you are a person who realizes what great reward is being written for you. Then you're not counting down, you are loving every moment of being in that act of worship. You love every moment knowing that it's being written for you in your deeds. So these are some of the points that a person needs to think about when it comes to Ramadan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made this month an opportunity for rectification. And that rectification, that piety, will only come to you if you recognize these virtues and wisdoms of Ramadan. If you don't, and all your focus every day is just what time does it close tomorrow, what time does it open? That is the only thing that you're bothered about every day. That is the only figures you need to remember every day. Then at the end of Ramadan, you will notice you have not benefited from it. The point is you do not want to enter into Ramadan and then come out at the other side exactly the same. You don't. If you go into Ramadan and you come out afterwards exactly the same as you were when you went into it, then you have not tasted the fruits of it in reality. You need to come out of it from the other side at the end of Ramadan, having improved, having dropped your sins, having increased in worship. You never used to read the Qur'an before, you got yourself into the habit in Ramadan, so now at the end of Ramadan, you continue and you've got yourself into the habit of reading every day, every week. Alhamdulillah, you've improved. You never used to fast much. Ramadan, you practiced and patience. So after Ramadan, now you start doing some of the supererogatory fasting. You've benefited, you've improved. Before Ramadan, you used to have certain types of bad habits. You used to swear when you talk. You used to lie, you used to cheat, slander, backbite, storytelling. But now in Ramadan, you began to control yourself, knowing that if you do those things, it's going to take away the reward of your day. So that trained you. And that is what the scholars, they say, Ramadan trains you. It is a training process to better yourself and to improve yourself, to learn that patience during it. To understand what rewards will be written for you if you do it properly. To remember the gate in paradise, especially for the people of fasting. To remember that you could come out on Eid day with all of your past sins forgiven. All of those minor sins forgiven. And make the tawbah for the major. When a person realizes those benefits 
then he won't spend Ramadan just thinking about when's the closing, when's the opening every day. That won't be the focus. When it comes to the taraweeh, the focus won't be when are we going to get out every day checking the timings, every day counting down the raka'at. A person who spends his Ramadan like that, then you're going to come out at the end of it fatigued and tired because you've been fasting, you've been praying. So you'll come out at the end of Ramadan with a level of fatigue and a level of effort you've obviously put into fasting and praying. But having done all of that, having experienced some fatigue in that worship, at the end of it, have you actually benefited from it? Have you benefited in your righteousness, your taqwa? Have you improved yourself in anything? Have you done anything for yourself? You've got yourself tired and fatigued and you've done everything and fasting for a month. But at the end of it, you're still as bad as you used to be before. So then what was the purpose of all of that fatigue and hunger during Ramadan? If that is how it ends up, then like the narration we mentioned, like the narration we mentioned before, the one who does not leave his evil speech, does not leave his uh, evil actions, then that type of person, Allah has no need for him to leave his food and drink. It's not the food and the drink as the Salaf said. It is the righteousness, the taqwa, the leaving your sins and your shortcomings. That's what you need to focus on in Ramadan. You want to come out at the other side of Ramadan having dropped some of these sins, all of these sins that you're upon now. That is your target. That is what a person focuses on. If that doesn't occur to you, that isn't a target. Nobody has that in mind, just the timetable. Then you fast and you feel hunger and you go through that thirst for 30 days. And at the end of it, you've not improved nothing. You're still upon the evil that you used to be upon. So then, as the Salaf used to say, if you're not going to improve yourself in Ramadan, then when are you ever going to improve yourself? You're not going to be able to take the opportunity of Ramadan for rectification of your soul. When do you think you're ever going to rectify yourself then? When do you think you're going to start practicing and praying? You're not going to take the opportunity in Ramadan. In Ramadan, this blessed time, this opportunity Allah gives you, the Salaf used to make dua six months before Ramadan. Oh Allah, allow us to live long enough to get to Ramadan. Six months in advance. Oh Allah, decree for us enough life to live to Ramadan. That is of the virtue they knew of Ramadan. They desired and loved to get to Ramadan. So perhaps that is a short advice that we'll mention regarding Ramadan. And it will be something that consolidates what you've been hearing during the day so that a person comes out with that key message that Allah has told you the reason and the purpose and the objective behind fasting. And that is to achieve taqwa. This Ramadan then, ensure your focus is on that. To achieve taqwa during the month. To drop your sins 
to improve yourself and to rectify yourself. That is what a person needs to have their focus on. That is what you need to have benefited as the key point. Because otherwise the masses of people out there, all it is, is the schedule. And as Shaykh Al-Athameen said, at the end of Ramadan, when it comes to the end of Ramadan, people can be split up into two categories. At the end of Ramadan, everybody will be either category A or category B. Category A are the people who are glad it's over. They feel relief that finally it's over. And they are overjoyed that it's gone for a year. Those types of people have not benefited from Ramadan. The ones who cannot wait to see the back of Ramadan. That is one category of people when it comes to Eid day or the night of Eid. That is one category. People who are relieved that it's over and it's the back of Ramadan for a year. The second category of people are those who feel sad at the end of Ramadan. A type of sadness they feel because now they know this blessed month has come to an end. And they know that blessed opportunity has come to an end. That night of decree, the, the fasting, the congregational taraweeh, all of that blessed time has come to an end. That great opportunity has come to an end. So they feel sadness. They feel sadness at that. That is the type of person who has benefited from Ramadan. And they know of the virtues and they've been striving to gain them. And so they feel sad now that their opportunity has come to an end. That is the type of person you want to be. If you find yourself on the night of Eid, feeling relief and you're glad that it's over and you don't have to fast anymore, then you need to analyze yourself. Analyze yourself and where you are and your relationship with your Lord and your worship. A person who feels happy at the back of the worship, glad that it's gone, then that type of person cannot be upon a great deal of strength in Iman. And that is a weakness in Iman. A person who feels glad Ramadan is gone, rather the strong in Iman feel that sadness that the opportunity has finally come to an end now, and there is no more of the Ramadan. So that is what we'll briefly mention in that short reminder. As we said, it is only a consolidation of what you've done during the day today. So inshallah ta'ala, the message regarding those affairs will have been clear. We can take some questions then before rounding off. There are some questions here. We'll go through some of these that have come here on this paper. And then any others you can add on if anybody else has any more. First one here mentions, Is it okay to pray 20 raka'at taraweeh? Twenty raka'at taraweeh. With the taraweeh prayer, if you look in the books of fiqh, 
you will notice that there are over 40 different opinions. 44, as some scholars mention, regarding how many taraweeh you should pray. We know of the famous opinion that you should never go over 11 or 13, based upon the narration of Aisha radiallahu anha as one of the evidences that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam never used to go over 11 or 13 in the other narration. Others, however, have stated that it's allowed to pray more than 11 or 13, and that you can go up to 20, 22, 24, 30, 32, 40, 42. One of the evidences they've used to say that it's permissible to go above the eight, as we say, is the narration of a man who came to the Prophet ﷺ and asked him, how do I pray the night prayer? The Prophet ﷺ told him, Mathna, Mathna, in twos, meaning pray two raka'at, then give the salam, pray another two raka'at, give the salam, another two raka'at, give the salam, Pray it in twos. And that's all the Prophet ﷺ told him. What was the question of the man when he came? How do I pray the night prayer? The taraweeh, if you want to call it. The Prophet ﷺ told him in twos. You pray two, give salam, pray two, give salam, etc. And that's it. So now the man is going to go away and he's going to pray his night prayer. He's asked the Prophet ﷺ how to pray, he's been told in twos. So the man begins that night, for example now, for example now, he begins praying in twos. Prays two, gives salam, prays another two, gives salam, prays another two, gives salam. How many can he pray up to? How many is he going to pray? The Prophet ﷺ, did he give him any quantity? He didn't give him any quantity. He only told him in twos. Some of the scholars use this as an evidence. Some of the scholars use this as an evidence to say that the number you pray is unrestricted. Why? Because of a principle in fiqh. لا يجوز تأخير البيان عن وقت الحاجة it is not permissible to delay clarifying something from the moment when it is needed to be clarified. This man came asking the Prophet ﷺ, how do I pray the night prayer? How do I pray taraweeh? Is that not a moment where clarification regarding the night prayer is needed by this man? He needs to know, how do I pray? Surely that includes the method of praying. And also, if it was haram to go more than eight, then the Prophet ﷺ would have told him there and then, twos, but remember, don't go more than eight. The man has come asking, how do I pray? It wouldn't make any sense. 
for you to say to him you pray in twos and not tell him you can only go up to eight. They say the fact that the Prophet ﷺ didn't tell him that you can only go up to eight though, remember, indicates that the Prophet ﷺ purposely left it open for him, knowing that the man has come asking, what do I do, how do I pray? He doesn't know. Prophet ﷺ knew the man doesn't know what to do. Just told him, go and pray in twos. Didn't tell him only up to eight though. The fact that he didn't tell him indicates it's unrestricted. That you can pray more than eight. That is what some of the scholars have said. Others, however, as we mentioned before, have said, but we need to look at the example of the Prophet ﷺ himself too. Because when you're trying to work out what is sunnah, you can't just take one narration, you're supposed to take all of the narrations together. So now yes, we have this narration about the twos. And then we have the narration of Aisha telling us that the Prophet ﷺ never used to go more than 11 or 13 with the witter added. It's what you may call the eight. That he never used to go beyond that. That's all he ever used to pray. So from the practice of the Prophet ﷺ, we know he never used to pray more than 11 or 13. He never prayed 20. That's not in dispute. The Prophet ﷺ never prayed 20. He prayed 11 or 13. So now it seems like a very strong position to take to say, well, we're just going to stick to exactly what the Prophet ﷺ did and not go on to 20 or whatever else. We'll stick to the 8 and then the witr. Seems a very simple, strong position. But then the other scholars will say, but you cannot reject our argument either. If that was the case, then why didn't the Prophet ﷺ tell that man to but only up to 8 though, remember? Why didn't he tell him that? Why? It's a strong argument also. It's a strong argument also from that side that it cannot be that it's restricted and haram to go beyond that number. Otherwise the Prophet ﷺ would have told that man there and then that you can pray in twos but only up to eight. Only up to 11 or 13 with the witr. He didn't. Left it open. So now you can see there are arguments on different sides. There are evidences on different sides. Yes, you could say overall, overall, clinging to the practice of the Prophet ﷺ is perhaps the stronger position. You could say overall, clinging to the practice of the Prophet ﷺ himself, what he did, that's what we'll do, seems a very simple and strong position to take. Because the other one you could argue you're assuming. Maybe scholars may come and say, well, you're assuming things. The Prophet didn't tell him you got to stop at eight. Maybe the man already knew about how many you can pray. He just didn't know how to pray. Possible or not? Possible, maybe, who knows? So the scholars will say that type of thing isn't as strong 
as our very simple evidence that the Prophet did not pray more than 11 or 13 with the witr. So we stick to that. And that seems a very simple and strong position. However, like we said, because there are these evidences to the other positions, it's not one of those issues where really you would go deeply into. If some people say they are praying 20, then they are praying 20. And they have some evidences for it. It's not like, even though some of the scholars do say it's bid'ah, etc., Others wouldn't take it to that level of saying it's a bid'ah, but they would say you stick to the 8 or the 13 as the Prophet didn't leave it at that. But the point is, it's not an issue where you begin fights over. If you're giving da'wah to people, you don't give da'wah talking about 8 or 20 issue. They are praying 20, there are evidences for it. There are Salafi scholars who say it's okay. Al-Shaykh al fawza 20, okay. So you can't argue over that type of issue with somebody you're trying to give da'wah to, somebody who's upon the aqidah of the diobandiyya, the jama'at al-tabliyyah. You're not going to be arguing over the 8 or 20 issue. You need to be discussing aqidah with those people. So bear in mind, this is an issue where there are evidences on both sides, and that there are even some Salafi scholars who will allow more than 8, so with da'wah to people, to people who have mistakes in aqidah, then do not start getting into debates of 8 and 20. That's what they want to do. They want to make it out like the 8 thing is a Wahhabi thing. And so they want to debate the Wahhabis over the 8 raka'at. Tell them we have no need. There are even Salafi scholars who say you can pray at 20. Come and debate on aqidah. Your mistakes and your grave errors in aqidah, fix them. Fix them and sort those problems out, not start debates on 8 or 20. Another question here says, does brushing the teeth with toothpaste break my fast? Anyone? No? Well, the scholars, they give a bit more of a detailed answer than that, as Sheikh Bin Baz and others. They say, obviously, you should... Well, they say, it depends on the type of toothpaste as well. They say, if a toothpaste is very strongly flavored, then you should definitely try to avoid that. Strongly flavored toothpaste, you shouldn't use when you're fasting. Very strongly flavored toothpaste. As for mild toothpaste, then that's lesser in degree. Overall, the scholars, they say, generally you should avoid it. Overall, avoid using toothpaste when you're fasting. Strong flavored toothpaste, definitely try and avoid. That is the overall answer. But if there was a need and you needed to brush your teeth, as long as you are careful, then yes, it is permissible to use and it doesn't break your fast. Brushing teeth with toothpaste doesn't break your fast. But the scholars say, Avoid it. Brush your teeth after your suhoor before the time starts. And brush your teeth after maghrib when you open your fast. Why do you have to do it during the day with toothpaste? If you really need to use miswak during the day. So overall the point is, it wouldn't break your fast if you did, if you're careful. But you should avoid using it when you're fasting. That is the answer the scholars give. 
Is breast, the next question, is breastfeeding pregnancy a valid reason not to fast? Two basic opinions on this. Some scholars, opinion number one in a nutshell, any woman who is breastfeeding or pregnant has the automatic right to miss fasting. Just like somebody who's traveling, you have an automatic right from Allah, a license, a ruhsa to miss the fast for the day. Even if you are fit and healthy and strong, and you can fast when traveling, you have the right to miss it. Some scholars say the breastfeeding woman and the pregnant woman have that same type of right. When they are breastfeeding or pregnant, automatically they're allowed to miss fasting. The second opinion is that breastfeeding and pregnant women do not have an automatic right to miss fasting. Just because somebody is pregnant or just because a woman is breastfeeding doesn't give them any right to miss fasting, the second opinion says. The second opinion says they only have a right to miss if it will impact upon either themselves or the baby. If there will be some detrimental effect, some <coughs> negative impact upon themselves or the baby, then yes, they're allowed to miss. If there is no negative impact upon themselves or the baby, then why are they not fasting? If they are medically completely fit and able, then what is the problem? Just last week, somebody was telling me, last year, still 18 hour fasts, there was a woman 9 months pregnant who fasted. No problems, no issues, nothing happened. So, the second opinion of the scholars is, a breastfeeding woman can miss only if it's going to impact upon her or the baby, the supply of milk is going to be impacted, etc., and pregnant woman, similarly, if it's going to impact upon her medically, her health, or the baby, then she can miss. So two opinions. One, automatically. Second, only if it's going to impact upon the health of the woman or the baby. How do you know if it's going to impact? You can see a doctor. You could ask a doctor the medical opinion regarding your health and your state as a pregnant woman. How are you doing with the pregnancy? The doctors, the midwives, etc., they tell you, well, your, uh, the way it's going and your, your, your rates and your numbers are not particularly at the higher level and it wouldn't be advisable for you to fast, etc., then okay. But if they tell you, mashallah, these numbers are through the roof, you can fast, it's not going to do anything. The level that we're seeing in your, your nutrition and everything else, then okay, fast if you want. So that in that case is something that a person can look into. Leading on from that, which we're not going to discuss now, but what does a pregnant woman do afterwards, or a breastfeeding woman do afterwards, if you do miss? There's a lot of discussion in the books of fiqh about that. A breastfeeding woman, if she doesn't, uh, rather a pregnant woman, who doesn't fast because of fear of her own health, has a ruling, a pregnant woman who doesn't fast because of fear upon her baby has a ruling. All of these things they mention in the books of fiqh, the basic opinions, either you give just the fidya, nothing upon you in terms of qada, 
And the second opinion, there is qada, you've got to make up those days. Fourth question, does a sister have to feed the poor if she doesn't fast due to menses? Or just make the fast up? The answer is, for a woman who's on the period, it is not feeding. The woman who is on the period and misses the days must make up those days afterwards. Fifth question says, does smelling perfume break the fast? Does smelling perfume break the fast? Anybody? No. But it's a smell only. Some scholars have mentioned, if it is a type of perfume that has uh, physical specks in it, we're talking about, for example, like the Saudi thing you've seen, the Bukhur, when you burn that, that charcoal type of thing you burn, some physical ashes go up into that smoke. If you breathe that in and those physical particles go into you, then some of the scholars say that could be an issue and it could be a breaking of your fast. Because now physical elements are going into you. But as for normal fragrance, misk and atar and whatever else, then that doesn't break your fast. Number six, should one raise hands in the witr prayer in the jama'ah? This is one of those where you can simply say again, it's mentioned, raising your hands is mentioned, not raising your hands is mentioned. Whether you raise them or you don't raise them, it cannot be said you've done bid'ah either way. Both are mentioned and they are both valid evidences about raising the hands and some of them say not raising the hands. So that's something amongst the scholars you find. Does swallowing your saliva break your fast? Scholars have mentioned that does not break your fast. Can I make the ghusl of janaba after starting my fast or must it be done before the start of fajr? Hmm? Yeah. So there are narrations of the Prophet ﷺ having woken up upon a state of janaba. The fast beginning and him doing the ghusl after the fast had begun. So it is not a condition of fasting that you must have done the ghusl of janaba before the close time. It can be after that. Obviously it's going to have to be soon after that. Because then you got to pray fajr. But it could be the point being after the close time as you call it. At what age should I discipline my child to fast? The scholars, they say it is upon the ability of the child when they are young, six, seven, eight. At that age, there's no obligation, but it is upon the ability of a child. So if that child is good and strong and fit and he's capable of fasting from a younger age, then give them practice and allow them to fast. But once they get obviously to the age of puberty, it becomes an obligation. Prior to that, it is upon their levels of ability uh, the Salaf, it's mentioned, they used to get their young children to fast. And their young children, when it got to Asr time, would begin to become very hungry and start crying from hunger. 
But the Salaf were giving them training. So they used to give them some toys. The children became preoccupied for that last period between Asr and Maghrib. And they got to Maghrib preoccupied with their toys. And then they would eat. So if the child is capable, once they get to an age of ability, then you can allow them to start practicing. And once they get to the age of puberty, it becomes an obligation. Is GCSE exams a valid reason not to fast the day? As the 18-hour fasts may affect my performance. Exams are not a valid reason to miss fasting. And it will affect your performance. It will increase your performance. The Salaf, they used to fast to increase their performance in their abilities with knowledge. The Salaf and the Imams of the past, they used to fast to sharpen their mind. So insha'Allah ta'ala, you do it for the sake of Allah with Iman. And insha'Allah ta'ala, that will uh, uh, increase your ability and bring you goodness. Next one says, does vomiting break my fast? Anyone? Only if it's forced. So it's mentioned in a narration that the one who makes himself vomit, the one who makes himself vomit, poking his finger into his throat or doing something else to make himself vomit, that breaks your fast. But if you're just not feeling well and you end up vomiting, accidentally not feeling well, that doesn't break your fast. Can I kiss my children whilst fasting? Anybody? Yes? You sure? So kissing the children does not break your fast. But the issue is regarding the kissing between adults. What is the ruling of kissing between the adults, between the husband and the wife? Allowed, mashallah, everybody allowed, allowed. <laughs> what is the ruling between kissing the husband and the wife when fasting? Does it depend on the ability of the man if he's able to restrain himself going against his brother? Any evidence as anybody can mention? For anything on that topic? There's a hadith, the Prophet ﷺ used to kiss Aisha radiallahu anha during fasting. But then Aisha radiallahu anha said at the end of the hadith, Kana li He, the Prophet ﷺ, had control, absolute control, more than any of you, that the kissing would not lead to anything further beyond that. He was able to have the absolute control of the affair. The scholars, they say therefore, that those who are in their, their younger age, then they should not. Because it will lead, or it can lead to something of desire arousing, but as for the elderly or for those who have that absolute level of control, then yes, it is permissible and it doesn't break your fast. But that's why many of the scholars, they say the young, it's not permissible for them, they shouldn't. Because Aisha gave the reasoning and that was the control of the Prophet 
Many of the fuqaha, they say the youngsters, the youth, and youth, we're talking about anybody in their, in their teens, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, that's youth compared to the old in age in 80s, 90s. Then the youth, the younger ones, many of the scholars say you shouldn't engage in that when fasting because it can lead to the arousal of further uh, 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 emotions, etc. But doing it with that control and nothing occurring, then it doesn't break your fast. Um, advice on scheduling for reading tafsir of Quran during Ramadan. I saw a schedule recently. That schedule was based upon a person having the ability to read a juz of the Quran in 20 minutes. Of course, most people may not be able to do that. But if you have the ability to recite a juz of the Quran in 20 minutes, and that is for the one who is good and is fluent with his Quran, then if you did five hours a day, or in fact not even five, if you did three hours reading a day, how many juz a day are you doing? Nine juz a day. So you're practically finishing the Quran in just over three days. You can all make a timetable for yourselves upon your ability. If you can finish a juz of the Quran in an hour it takes you. An hour is a long time to read a juz of the Quran. One juz is 20 pages in the Mus'haf. In the Mus'haf, 20 pages is a juz. One hour, most people can finish 20 pages. 20 pages of the Quran in one hour of reading. So if you can do that, put aside three hours a day, you're finishing three juz a day. Which means you'll finish the Quran in 10 days. You can finish the Quran three times in the month. So everybody has an ability. Work out your ability and make some type of schedule of how much you can do every day and target where you can finish the Quran. And everybody inshallah ta'ala can do multiple readings of the Quran in the month. Two zakat questions. Do I pay zakat on the gold that I wear? This is a famous difference of opinion between the scholars. Does a woman have to pay zakat on gold that she wears? Necklaces, rings, bracelets that she regularly wears on and off. It's jewelry that is worn on a regular reasonable basis. Does she have to pay zakat on that? Because the other type of gold she owns may be necklaces and all sorts that are put away in the box and she never wears them. They are there and they're going to be sold in the end. That type, clearly you pay zakat upon. The issue is upon the, the gold that you are regularly now and again on and off wearing. It is gold that is worn. There is a famous difference of opinion between the scholars on that. It is impossible to sit here now, we'd be here for another hour, just to have a lecture on the topic of, do you have to pay zakat on gold you wear or not? There are two opinions. One opinion of the scholars, yes, even on the gold you wear, pay the zakat on it. The other opinion, no. If you're wearing it, it is worn, then you don't have to pay zakat on the gold you wear. There's nothing more I can add to that at this stage, other than that there are these two opinions, and you can read about the opinions, and inshallah ta'ala conclude upon what you conclude. Somebody with a monthly salary, how do I work out my zakat? The scholars have mentioned the simplest, simplest way 
is just an annual figure. So you have a, a monthly salary, as most people do. Monthly money is coming in. Once you hit the nisab, which is roughly somewhere between two and three thousand pounds in terms of pounds, once you hit that, you've got that amount in your bank and you've had that amount for a year. Then after that, every year, just look at what's in your account, what you've got, 2.5% you're done. That is the simplest way. So now, for example, somebody's on, starts working. They're on a monthly salary. After six months of working, they've managed to save up the nisab, three thousand, two and a half thousand, whatever it is. That's now in their account, saved up after six months. So now they're going to wait a year. After a year passes by, then it's going to become obligatory upon them to give the zakat upon it. So then all they have to do from that stage every year is just look at their account. What's the figure? 2.5 and you're done. You don't have to worry about the monthly income or what's going out and what you're spending. Every year, all of your salary, whatever you've got in your account, then you just give the 2.5% on it. That is the simplest way. Some scholars have mentioned you can work out a monthly figure. What you're getting every month, work out your percentage monthly, and then at the end of the year, pay all of that. But the simplest way for a person with a salary, every year you just look at what you have, what you've got now, and you just give your zakat on it. You may say, but some of it I only earned in the last three or four months, a year hasn't passed on it. But that's what the scholars say. To make it simple there, the, by the next year now, it will have passed on it. And the year after that, will have passed on that. So every year it's going to pass on it. To make it simple, once a year you figure and do your uh, proportion from it and it's done. Anything else? Anybody have anything else before we round off then? Any other questions regarding Ramadan? I am 10 years old and I have to pray. Can I combine Maghrib and Isha in summertime? So the combining of Maghrib and Isha in summer. Permissible or not? Permissible? Inna salata kanat ala al-mu'minina kitaban mawquta and you're telling me you pray Isha at the time Maghrib? Aisha and Fajr is close. So in that case, why don't we just open the fast at Asr? It's so long. <laughs> use the opposite argument as well. If you can use that argument, why can't you use the opposite argument for fasting? Between Aisha and Fajr is so short. Hence, hence let's combine the Aisha with Maghrib. Between Fajr and Maghrib is so long. So let's combine it up to Asr. Many of the scholars, many of the major scholars, don't hold the opinion that it's permissible to combine Maghrib and Isha for these types of reasons. There are some, of course, there are some who have given the fatwa that it is permissible to combine between Maghrib and Isha for these various types of reasonings, perhaps because of the difficulty, the shortness of the night, maybe the fiqh issue regarding the twilight not disappearing, 
There are some scholars who have given the fatwa, it is permissible to combine between Maghrib and Isha. So be it. Fatwa is there from some of the scholars and it is done by some of the mosques. Alhamdulillah. But there are many scholars from the senior scholars too who don't agree with this whatsoever. Sheikh bin Baz and Sheikh Ahmed al-Najmi and Sheikh Zayd al-Madkhali etc. Many of them they say no. What are you talking about? Isha time has a time. What are you talking about prayed at the time of Maghrib? That's what they say. Sheikh bin Baz and the others even when the twilight can't be seen they say so what? In that case estimate the time of Isha just like when the Day will be like 50, uh, the day will be like a year when the Dajjal comes. Then it is said to them, estimate the times and pray. That's the evidence Sheikh bin Baz gave. He said, if you don't have a twilight, or meaning the, uh, the redness of the sky doesn't disappear, so technically Isha time doesn't come in, he said, then estimate it. Estimate it to the nearest country or somewhere, it's going to be an hour, an hour and a half, and then pray Isha. What do you mean combined because it doesn't come in? So many of the scholars don't allow this combination thing. Many of the scholars don't allow it. There are others who do allow it for these reasons as mentioned. So that firstly just depends on where you stand with regards to the issue of combining in the summer months between Maghrib and Isha. If you are upon this understanding based upon some of the fatawa of the scholars that you can, then you can. And a person, whether you're 10 years old or you're 80 years old, if you're upon that understanding, then yes, some of the scholars have said, you can combine between Maghrib and Isha. But upon that understanding, and everybody's probably guessing what my position is, but upon that understanding that you can combine between Maghrib and Isha then, in that case, in Ramadan, what happens to the combining? Where is it gone now? On Eid day you're going to start combining Maghrib and Isha, but in Ramadan you're not. Is the difficulty not there in Ramadan? Difficulty only comes on Eid day and afterwards? If you're going to start mentioning issues of difficulty, it can't just be something you pick a mix. You can't say that there's difficulty in the summer months so we have to combine. There's a fatwa of the scholars, okay. Ramadan comes, all of a sudden the difficulty, where's it gone? Disappeared. Now you're going to pray till 1 o'clock in the morning, mashallah. Superrogatory prayer at that. Not even the obligatory isha. So you can see, there are arguments against this issue of combining between Maghrib and Isha. But like we said, there are opinions of scholars that allow it. So if you're upon that understanding of its allowance, then yes, it's permissible. But otherwise... If you're not, and you don't agree with that, then the answer is no, you're not allowed to combine. Allah alam, things like this type of issue of the difficulty, the shortness of the night, perhaps the fiqh issue of the redness of the night not disappearing. There are multiple types of factors like that. Uh, based upon them, some of the scholars have, several scholars, not just one, have given that fatwa that it's permissible to combine the Maghrib and Isha in those circumstances. The fidya for any person, whether you're old in age and you can't fast anymore, whether you have a chronic illness and you cannot fast, whether it is the breastfeeding woman, the fidya only becomes obligated upon the ending of the day. So you can't just pay it all at the beginning of the month. You shouldn't do that at the beginning of the month, pay it all. 
it only becomes obligated upon completion of the day. So now after the first day of Ramadan at iftar time, one day is obligatory upon you now. Before iftar on the first day, nothing's obligatory upon you yet. You haven't missed any day yet. So it becomes obligatory at the iftar of every day. You can delay it all to the end. Now 30 days are obligatory upon you. Pay it all in one go at the end. Or on a daily basis, you can pay it every day. But uh, to pay all of it in advance, Allahu A'lam about the permissibility of that. Unless anybody is aware of some fatwa of the scholars saying, you can pay it all in advance, Allahu A'lam. But afterwards is what is known, because once you've missed the day, now it's obligatory upon you, the fidya. So uh, after the day, every day, or you can leave it to the end and pay it only one go. Doesn't have to be multiple people either, can be one miskeen that you feed him 30 times, that will do also. Breaking your fast? Yeah. Some brothers. Breaking the fast, it's done at home according to the sunnah. You break your fast at home and then you go to the mosque and pray. What if you're unable to combine the two? If you're unable to break the fast at home, because by the time you break your fast at home and get to the mosque, they've already finished Maghrib, which could be the case, then you should go to the mosque. Take something with you, open your fast so you can pray in the jama'ah. Jama'ah is the issue. Jama'ah is the issue. So a person should pray in the jama'ah. If you don't have any place suitable at all, there are people of innovation, of extreme innovation, then khalas, you do your own thing, you do your own jama'ah, you pray separate. But where there's a place that it's permissible to pray in, ikhwanis and whatever else, then khalas, you go, you can take your own dates with you, just open your fast, you don't have to sit with them and congregate with them, you can just take your own dates Open your fast, sit, pray, and then Maghrib time, pray with them and go. That can be done. You don't have to sit with them and mingle with them and have food with them. Even that isn't required. You can just casually stroll to the mosque, open your fast, on the way even maybe the time comes in. If you get there, just buy yourself with your dates, etc. Then start praying, read Quran, and then pray the Maghrib with them. In Ramadan, many mosques, we'll leave this as the last one then. In Ramadan, many mosques have different entrance times for Fajr. What should we follow? You definitely don't follow those entrance times that are telling you the entrance time is before even the Taraweeh time begins. Some of those entrance times that are 12.37 a.m. or the close times meaning 12.37, 12.39, Those people who have those types of times, right now if you go and check their Fajr timetable, Right now, their fajr will be at what? 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. On the first day of Ramadan, mashallah, something happens. Fajr moves by two hours back to 1 a.m. How does fajr move in one day by two hours? So you know, these people are upon this precaution, which is not from the sunnah, it is opposition to the sunnah. It is not. How can they say fajr begins at 1 a.m. and just the day before it was beginning at 3 a.m.? So that is incorrect. But otherwise, the times that revolve around themselves, three, whatever it may be, one minute past three, three minutes past three, 2.59, those types of times, it does not make a huge difference. The schedules are there as a guideline. So all of those are there or thereabouts. So khalas, you just end there or thereabouts. The times are telling you 2.59, 3.01, 3.02. Khalas, you finish just there. 
3 o'clock, you're okay. You're finishing at that time. It's not a pinpoint thing. It is a, a guideline for you regarding the entry of Fajr. Anything else then? Or oh, we'll conclude upon that for the day. Mm. No, if, if they are definitely praying wrong times, Maghrib time hasn't come in and they are praying Maghrib, if you know that, then you don't pray with them It's before it's time. Or they are purposely delaying the Adhan of Maghrib, which is more common in Ramadan. Mosques purposely delay the Adhan of, Ramal, of uh, Maghrib to give precaution again, just give it a few more minutes. Then that is wrong. If you know it's time for Maghrib, even if they aren't doing the Adhan, you know it's the time of Maghrib now, and they are purposely putting an extra 10 minutes onto their Maghrib when Ramadan starts, you can open your fast on that time, you don't have to wait for their Adhan. So, go on. If you go to a mosque that combines the Maghrib and Isha, and what, and you don't... And you don't hold that opinion. So the scholars, they say you shouldn't break the jama'ah. So if that be the case, pray your maghrib and just pray nafal in the jama'ah with them instead of breaking off and walking away. Some of the scholars, they advised to stay with the jama'ah, pray nafal. Because you don't believe you can pray isha yet. So you pray nafal. And then afterwards you pray your isha. If the mosque is closed, you pray by yourself then. So... We'll conclude upon that for today then. It's coming almost to the time of Maghrib. Hopefully, inshallah ta'ala, it's been a day of benefit. Hopefully, everybody will now have learned something which will improve their Ramadan for this year, which will give them a greater benefit from their Ramadan this year. And they've understood more of the virtues and the rewards of this great month and how blessed it is. And that was the purpose of today. So inshallah ta'ala, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us all a blessed Ramadan and to give us all this opportunity to rectify ourselves and to come out with a greater level of piety and taqwa. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een.